0: Have you ever wondered how theology, apologetics, and real life come together? Join Pastor Brandon as he covers these topics in his series titled, Life's Big Questions. Here's Pastor Brandon. All right, well, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, 16, and can I just, is it hot down here, or is it just me? Is it warm? I know half y'all freeze to death, and then the other half burn up, and so maybe it's these lights, I don't know, but... I could just take this jacket off. That'd probably make me feel a lot better. But All right, I won't adjust it. I won't send no word to have somebody turn the air down. But John 14, 15, and 16. I want to pick up where we left off last week in our study of the Holy Spirit. And that's really what we've been doing. This is the third Wednesday night that we've sort of addressed the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And um, the field of study You know, the Holy Spirit is not a doctrine. He's a person, the third person of the triune Godhead. But the doctrine of of, of the Holy Spirit, uh, theology related to the Holy Spirit, his person, his work. We call this pneumatology. Uh, Comes from the Greek word pneuma, which is the word that's translated spirit or wind in the New Testament. And it's very similar to the Hebrew word ruach which is translated wind in the Old Testament, or spirit. So pneumatology, this is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And so we're attempting to answer questions like this. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? Why is it important for us as believers to understand the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And so, understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit really should be important for every believer. Uh, every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ, you should want to know and understand uh, who the Spirit is and what the Spirit has come to do. And the reason for this is that it's the Holy Spirit who makes the reality of truth and the presence of God experiential in our lives. Aren't you grateful that you can have a personal relationship with God? And God has come to live within you through the person of the Holy Spirit. Believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you can have experiential knowledge of God. So when we talk about knowing God, you've got to know truth about God so that you can worship him. But true knowledge of God is experiential in nature. It's doctrinal. Yes, there are truths that you've got to know God must be related to only in the way that he himself has revealed. And yet at the same time, this knowledge of God that we have as believers is experiential. Aren't you grateful that you can know God and have a personal relationship with him? And so that relationship uh, is through his presence in your life. It's the Holy Spirit who's come to live within you. Uh, One person has expressed it this way, an understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is basic to Christian living, but you can't fully comprehend the work of a person without also knowing something about that person. And in the same way, it's necessary to know something about the person of the Holy Spirit in order to fully appreciate and understand his work. And so that's what we've tried to do these last couple of Wednesday nights, And I begin by introducing you first to the person of the Holy Spirit. And the foundational text in the New Testament for really understanding the person and the work of the Spirit comes from John's Gospel. These chapters here, John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus shares intimate truth with his disciples. He's told his disciples how he's leaving and the Spirit would be coming, and Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. John fourteen twelve, another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's making this promise then to his disciples that after his departure, after his ascension, the spirit is going to come and live in them. So they're not going to be left alone as Christ's disciples. Uh, There would be another divine person who would take his place in their midst. Jesus had been beside them, but the spirit would come and be inside them. So when we refer to the Holy Spirit, and I pointed this out two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit is a person to be referred to in personal terms. He, him, not it. The Spirit is not an impersonal force, but a person. Uh, He is a real person, a divine person, and a unique person. Now, last Wednesday night, I also shared with you some symbols of the Holy Spirit. And really, there are eight symbols or word pictures that illustrate the ministry of the Holy Spirit, eight of these that are mentioned. And it's an amazing thing how often a picture or an illustration can help us understand a complex truth. You know, I think often the best the best teachers are those that can keep the cookies uh, on the on the bottom shelf for all of us. there's just something about an illustration or a symbol that helps drive home a spiritual truth. And Jesus was the master at doing this in his ministry, wasn't he? He told stories to illustrate spiritual truth. Well, symbols also illustrate truth. And there are symbols uh, that are mentioned in Scripture in connection with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And one of those symbols, the first one would be that of clothing. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24 that the Father would send the promised Spirit so that they could be clothed with power from on high. And so you, you think of the ministry of the Spirit as being that by which God clothes us with power. You ever thought of your life as a witness for Christ? Have you thought of yourself being clothed with the power of God? It's a fitting picture of the ministry of the Spirit. The most familiar symbol is then that of the dove, and you see this tangibly illustrated at the baptism of Jesus, as the Spirit is said to descend upon the Son in the form of a dove, and the dove is often used as a symbol for righteousness. Fire is another symbol that we mentioned. On the day of Pentecost, you see the imagery of fire And this is symbolic of the presence of God. You find that really all throughout scripture. Oil, anointing with oil, symbolizes an appointment to an important position. Priests were anointed in the Old Testament. Kings were anointed. And this is the same imagery that's used in scripture to describe the Spirit's ministry to us as believers. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, says that it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who's put his seal on us and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And then you have that of a pledge. The Holy Spirit is given to every believer as a pledge, a guarantee of his full salvation. And I'll say a little bit more about this later on tonight. A seal, the Spirit is described in terms of being a seal that makes the ownership of believers, God owns us, and so the seal of salvation, the Spirit is a seal. It means he's become our security. Water is also a symbol of the Spirit. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, whoever believes in me As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then the Bible says that Jesus said this specifically about the spirit who would be given to those who believe in him. So when you got saved, God put an artesian well of living water in you through the person of his Holy Spirit. And then wind, wind, you see this in John chapter 3 through the 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 conversation that Jesus has with uh, Nicodemus. I heard Mac Brunson preach from John three. He preached a sermon called "Nick at Night," (laughs) because Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and and the whole conversation. You you see that conversation. Jesus says that to be born again, this is the ministry of the Spirit, and just like the wind, the wind blows wherever it wants to. So it is with the ministry of the Spirit. So all of these are beautiful symbols that illustrate who the Spirit is, what the Spirit does, uh, what He's come to do in our lives. And then the third category that we sort of began looking at last Wednesday night was the actual work of the Spirit. Considering who He is by way of the person of the Spirit and the symbols that are illustrative of His personhood, what is it exactly that the Spirit does? What is His distinct role in our lives as believers? Well, to put it simply, you could say that the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, especially in the church. Now, aren't you glad that the Bible teaches the truth that our God is active in the world? You know, some people sort of have had this idea of God, this deist idea that, you know, God's like a watchmaker who kind of wound the universe up. And so everything's winding down, but God is sort of hands off. And he's watching it all wind down. He's not really related in the everyday details of my life. He's not involved in the affairs of life, the details of life. That's not what the Bible teaches, is it? We know that the Bible teaches God is intimately involved in the details of this universe. I mean, Jesus even said that not one sparrow falls from the sky to the ground without God being fully aware of it. He knows the very numbers of the hairs of our head. He knows the happenings of our lives. He's involved in his universe. He's active in his universe, and he's active in the world by means of his spirit. And God is very active in the world, and you think about the redemptive plan of God that's being carried out as people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, And the witness of the gospel is being preached and declared and shared. This is the work of God's Spirit in his church, indwelling believers, empowering believers to share the truth of the message, and people are being added to the kingdom every day. So what is it exactly then that the Spirit does? Well, to begin with, he unites the believer to Jesus Christ. The first thing to consider involving the work of the Spirit is that work by which he unites believers in Jesus Christ, he places them into the body of Christ. All right, so so again, the gift of the Spirit, Jesus referred to the Spirit as the promise from the Father. And before he ascended, he told his disciples that they would be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now, okay? Acts chapter 2, where we've been the last couple of weeks, we read the account of the Spirit's actual arrival there on the day of Pentecost, and that marks the beginning of the Spirit's indwelling presence as believers are baptized uh, with the Spirit. They're immersed. That's what that word baptized means. It means immersion, okay? And so this is mentioned elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Bible says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. No matter if you're Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Same thing, Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter three, uh, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ he's not talking about water baptism there, he's talking about, by the way, water baptism is merely a reflection of this spiritual reality that's true of you as a Christian. Okay, so in Paul's day that word "baptize" was used to describe the process of dyeing a cloth. So if you wanted a piece of cloth to be um, red or purple, you would dip it in red dye or purple dye. And so when that cloth came out of that dye, you had a different looking piece of cloth because that cloth had been immersed into something. Okay, so there was a transformation that took place. That was a different kind of cloth then that came out of that dye. No longer was it a white piece of cloth. Now it's a red piece of cloth because it's been fully immersed in that dye. So spiritually, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, as a believer, here's what God did for you. He fully immersed you into his own life. The life of God has come to take up residence within you. Before you were saved, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were in darkness. You were cut off from the life of God. You know, for the life of me, I don't know what the fascination is with this TV show called The Walking Dead. <laughs> I mean, it's like The Walking Dead Returns and The Walking Dead this and The Walking Dead that and Night of the Walking Dead and all this stuff and you see those crazy commercials of those zombies and stuff and, But you know what? Walking Dead, that's a very good description of every person who doesn't know Christ. You know, though they, though they can jump, though they can skip, though they can talk, their spiritual capacity, they're dead spiritually, dead in their trespasses and sins, but the baptism of the Spirit means that as a believer, you have been brought to life and it's the life of God in you. and You've been immersed fully into the life of God. Okay, so this was initiated at Pentecost and today it happens when a sinner trusts Jesus and is born again. Now again, there's a distinction then between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. Because I can't tell you how often we get so confused here. There's a lot of confusion in the church. And so I've, I dealt with this a little bit last Wednesday night. Let me kind of come back to it to just kind of help you. Baptism of the Spirit versus the filling. The filling of the Spirit. Okay? So when you think about these two terms, someone says, well, is it the same thing? It's not the same thing. Okay, these are two very different uh, truths uh, involving the ministry of the Spirit in your life. All right, so the first one then, baptism of the Spirit. Now listen to this. This is a one-time act that happens at salvation. It means you're immersed fully into the life of Christ. It means that you were sovereignly placed into the body of Christ. That's what that means. Okay? The filling then of the Holy Spirit, if that happens only one time, you know, salvation, the filling of the Holy Spirit, that ought to happen daily in your life as a believer. The baptism of the Spirit means that now um, you have the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit, that means that the Spirit has you. The baptism of the Spirit means that the Spirit is resident in your life as a believer. The filling of the Spirit means that He is president of your life as a believer many fillings one baptism you say well why are you emphasizing this because listen and i got to be careful here because you know the thing is the last 100 years you had you had you know sort of the charismatic movement and i know that our church has sort of a history of having to wade through some of this back in the 1970s at the height of the charismatic movement And it became very popular to understand the baptism of the Spirit as being a second work of grace. And a lot of people would look at what happened in Acts chapter 2 and say, well, you know, this baptism of the Spirit is something that happens subsequent. It's something that happens, uh, you know, following salvation. And so the evidence then of being baptized in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. And so you've not really been baptized in the Spirit until you're able to speak in tongues. And so you had well-meaning people who were advocating for a sort of a class-level Christianity. You sort of had everybody here and then those that experienced the baptism of the Spirit by speaking in tongues, they're up here. If you've never spoken in tongues, you've never been baptized in the Spirit. And so it really led to a lot of defeatism in the church and spiritual elitism in the church, okay? Folks, let me tell you, Pentecost happened one time. Much like Calvary happened one time. That doesn't mean that that it doesn't apply. That doesn't mean that there's not spiritual reality that's true for our lives because of what happened at Pentecost. We don't need a repetition of Pentecost. We need to live out of the reality of Pentecost because it happened. And and the beauty of Pentecost is that if you look in Acts chapter 2, the filling of the Spirit... The believers are filled with the Spirit, and as a result they 're able to supernaturally speak the Gospel in legitimate languages to all of those people who had come from all over the Roman Empire who were there in Jerusalem for the feasts so it was It was really a supernatural work of God for the propagation of the gospel you understand so so again. It's important that you understand this. Nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to seek the baptism of the Spirit. The believers were commanded to wait for the baptism of the Spirit. And Jesus is the one who told them that because he was going to ascend. And it would only be when he's ascended that the Spirit would come and indwell believers. But we are commanded to seek the filling of the Spirit every day and be Spirit-filled Christians. All right, so we'll talk about that at some point. I'd love to do some kind of a, you know, what does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? Well, We'll deal with that later on. So when the Bible talks about the, here's just some terms. When the Bible talks about the indwelling of the spirit, it means where the spirit is. He's come to live within me and you as believers. When the Bible talks about the filling of the spirit, it means this is what the spirit empowers us to do. The filling of the Spirit is connected with the empowerment, the empowerment of the Spirit. And when the Bible talks about the baptism of the Spirit, it refers to the new environment into which we've been placed the very moment we came to faith in Jesus Christ. God's put you, he's translated you from the kingdom of darkness and he's put you into the kingdom of his own dear son. And that is the baptism of the Spirit. Okay, now, moving on. Not only does he unite believers in Christ, but the Spirit enables us in our daily walk. And this is why the filling of the Spirit is so very important. Because Jesus tells his disciples there in John 14, 15, 16, he tells them that the comforter, the helper, who would come would basically be the enabler in their life. And in John chapter 15, he tells his disciples that apart from him in them and them in him, they couldn't do a single thing. Abide in me and I in you, John fifteen four. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's the life of God in the believer then that produces fruit. And the wonderful fruit of the Spirit that's described in Galatians chapter five. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is, you're not, <laughs> this is not something that you yourself produce in your life as you're relying upon your strength No, it's the life of God in you that produces this fruit. So so you've got a helper who enables you in your walk. Another helper. Jesus said, I'm sending you another helper. And I told you how there are two different Greek words that are often translated another. Uh, You've got the word heteros, which means different from. But then the word alas is another word translated. another. It means another of the same kind. So when Jesus says, I'm sending you another helper, he says, I'm sending you alas, paracletos, another helper, another of the same kind, which simply means you're not getting less of God when you're getting the Holy Spirit. We don't have less of God than the disciples did who were able to walk around with Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. We have all of God through the Holy Spirit who lives within us, and he's the one who's empowering God's people to do greater works. Jesus said we'd do even greater works than he did, and it's, it's the Spirit of God who's accomplishing that through us. So for example, you read the book of Acts, and you go through the book of Acts. You know, historically, the book of Acts has been referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, but Perhaps more appropriately, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit who's living within the apostles and the early church, who's accomplishing great and mighty things through imperfect vessels. So because the Holy Spirit is ever-present with us, indwells us, enables us to love God, to serve God, you can draw on the full power of deity wherever you go, no matter where you are, (laughs) And then the Spirit glorifies the Son. I think I made it this far last Wednesday night. John 16. Look there in John 16, verses 13, and the verses that follow. Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now listen to this. Jesus says, of the Spirit and his work, He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. So, the Spirit's role is not to make much of himself, but to make much of Christ. And so the marks of a Spirit-filled Christian will be that person's life bears a resemblance to the life of Jesus and points other people to Jesus. And the Spirit magnifies Jesus. It's what J.I. Packer said, the Spirit has a floodlight ministry. He shines the floodlight, as it were, on, the Holy S- or on Jesus Christ. He turns everyone's attention to the Son of God. And so an increasing likeness to Christ in your life, this is the, this is the result of the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit in your life so, again, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So he's put an engine in you as far as the Christian life is concerned, and that's the Holy Spirit. And without his divine presence living inside of us, we can't accomplish even the simplest of Jesus' commands. I can't overcome sin in my life apart from the Spirit's power. Uh, I can't love others the way that I'm commanded to love others apart from the Spirit's power. I can't win other people to Jesus and be a witness apart from the Spirit's power. I can't raise my children and make disciples out of my kids apart from the Spirit's power. All of that. I'm so dependent upon the Spirit's power to be able to do that. Now, let me just kind of show you something else, and I'm going to spend the remainder of our time here tonight, okay? Something else that the Spirit does. You couldn't be saved if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God the Holy Spirit who places us into the body of Christ and has come to take up residence in our lives. And so listen, the Spirit applies the work of redemption. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit who makes the saving work of Jesus Christ personal to the believer. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever asked questions like this? How can I know for sure that I'm even saved? Uh, Can a person lose his salvation? Now these are pertinent questions. I've been asked these questions by a lot of believers. But do you know that those questions are related to the work of the Spirit? Because the assurance of your salvation, this is something that's communicated to your heart by the presence of God living in you as a believer. You know, the thing is, Christians who don't have an assurance of their salvation, a lot of times their lives will be plagued with guilt, be riddled with insecurity, and they won't be effective in terms of serving God and living out the calling that God's placed on their lives, and God doesn't want that for you and for me. He wants you to have confidence that you are indeed a child of God because our joy and our love and our service and all of this flows from having an assurance that you are indeed a child of the living God. And that's the Spirit's work in your life as a believer. All right, so security then. Security is an important part of your salvation. And it's one of the greatest benefits of the Spirit's presence in your life. And it's a tragic thing. That few believers seem to understand the presence of, of, of uh, or experience the peace of God's presence in their life as it relates to their own assurance of salvation. Okay? Now, let me tell you something. A genuine child of God can never lose his or her status of sonship. Now, I, had, I heard one Amen. Listen, if you know, every single one of us ought to just absolutely jump up at the thought that I can never lose my status of sonship as someone who has come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been adopted into the family of God. I've been immersed into the life of God. The spirit of the living God has taken up residence in me. I cannot lose my status of sonship. Now, we'll tell you, I can fall out of fellowship, right? For example, Andrew Ware. You know, his name means strong. We named him that. I loved Andrew in the Bible. I loved Andrew. We wanted to name our son Andrew because in the New Testament, Andrew is the disciple who's always bringing people to Jesus. And I just I thought, man, that'd be a wonderful thing that I would want my son uh, to, to, to do in his life. And so strong, strength, that's what Andrew means. And he is indeed strong and strong-willed. But you know something? As far as sonship is concerned, he's always going to be my son. He can't lose that status of sonship. He looks like me. I, I couldn't deny him if I wanted to. Right? He can't lose that status of sonship. Now, but me and him, well, we can have some fellowship issues from time to time. You know, when, when those shoes get left on the stairwell at home, and, and son, you go home from school, I'm smelling a foul odor here in the living room. It's wafting from the stairwell. You need to get them things and put them in your closet and close the door. <laughs> and if he doesn't do that, immediately when I speak, well, there's some fellowship issues that we have. Same thing's true in your life as a child of God. You can't lose your status of sonship. You know Jesus Christ is your savior. You're a son or a daughter of God. That's true of you. It's not true of you because it's you who are maintaining that relationship. You listening? It's true of you because this is what God has declared to be true of you. You are his son, you are his daughter through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when you sin against God, you don't lose your sonship, but your fellowship gets hindered. And at times, you may even feel like that sonship has been threatened. The fact you say, how could I have said that? How could I have done that? If, I'm a, if I was a Christian, surely I never could have done that. But you know what that is? It's the life of God in you. It's the spirit of God in you communicating the seriousness of sin. And as a believer, when you sin, you don't lose your status as a son or daughter, but you, your, your fellowship is hindered. And the spirit sounds an alarm in you, right? So that you can confess that sin, which means you say the same thing about that sin that God says about it. And a true child of God will have no problem doing that because the life of God has come to take up residence and the, the spirit of God, the spirit of truth who delights in the truth has come to take up residence in them. So, so, how does the Spirit then apply the work of redemption? Well, there are at least six things that He does. Let me give these to you as quick as I can. All right. Uh, first, He convicts. He convicts. By the way, you think about how this has been true in your life now that you're a Christian. How did, this be- how did I become a Christian? It all began with the convicting power of the Spirit. The Bible says that apart from God's saving intervention, all people are eternally lost. You know, we don't become lost at some point in our lives. All of humanity, because of sin and because of what, you know, Adam and we're in daddy Adam, we're all, born into this condition, this hopeless condition, cut off from the life of God. And we need, to, we need to know that we're lost. And it's the work of the Spirit to communicate that truth to a sinner so that the way back home can then be shown to that sinner. So someone says, well, how in the world is it that a person will ever know that he or she is lost? Well, that's the role of the Spirit. Uh, look there in John 16, verse number. skip down to verse number Uh, verse number 8 where Jesus says that the helper would come. In verse 8 he says when he comes he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay so so The task then of the Holy Spirit is to bring people front and center before Jesus Christ. Uh, He's to bring those who are, here's a word, unregenerate, uh, unconverted. He's to bring them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And then it's also his role to keep the regenerate in right fellowship with God. And he does that by means of conviction. Okay, so conviction. When the Bible talks about conviction, here's what that word means. It's related to convincing a person of something. So think of convict and convince as being uh, similar words here. All right, it means that the job of the Spirit is to make clear those spiritual issues of life and call for a decision. And apart from the Spirit's work in this matter, no person could ever be saved. So, I'm saying you can't tiptoe your way into the kingdom nonchalantly. You've got to be convicted. And it's the Spirit who brings conviction to the heart. Sinners are in the dark and they need the light turned on. God has to get their attention. And He does that through this process known as conviction. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 If our gospel be veiled, it's veiled to them that are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, little g, Little G-O-D, it's reference to the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see a lost person behaving like a lost person, and you shake your head, you wonder, why in the world? Listen, a lost person is just doing what a lost person knows to do. Because the God of this world has blinded their minds. Which is why instead of standing over them in accusation and judgment and condemnation we should pray that God would open their eyes that God would do something on the inside and that God by means of his spirit would bring conviction to their heart it's easy to want to shake my head in shame at a lost world but man aren't you grateful that Jesus wept for a lost and dying world Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost so How does the spirit turn the light on? How does he convict? Well, if you look there in John 16, verses nine, 10, and 11, you'll notice that Jesus sort of explains or mentions at least three areas in which the spirit does his convicting work, All right? The first area, okay, is, is in the area of sin. Sin, unbelief. Those who are lost, they don't understand basic realities about sin. They don't understand how sinful it is. They call it a mistake, a weakness, um, a habit, anything to soften the blow. We're notorious at making our sins sound a lot better than what they really are. We come up with all kinds of different words. You know, where the Bible uses a word like adultery, we come up with words like affair or liaison, you know? We come up with all kinds of different words to try to soften the blow of sin because something in our conscience, it just, we want to try to stifle that. So God calls it sin. It is what it is. It's an affront to his holiness and the world doesn't understand this because the world has been blinded by the devil. The world is lost and in darkness and so the spirit of God has got to make clear to sinners the seriousness of their sin. And that's what Jesus is saying there. He will convict the world of sin. And they fail to understand that there's sin, there's a deeper issue than just sin. We tend to think of sins, the symptoms. But you know the symptoms of sin, the actual sins that are committed themselves, really there's a deeper issue and the root issue is unbelief. Unbelief. All right, Take sexual sins for example. We could go down the litany of the list and we could talk about various sexual sins and talk about the symptom of the sin itself, but the root core issue is unbelief. That's what Jesus is saying here in John 16. And so it's the Spirit's job, the Spirit works to convict people of their sin and their rejection of God's truth. So He works first of all to convince people that they are sinners who have rejected God. Okay. Now, not only is sin an area that Jesus mentions, right, someone who's got their Bible open in front of them, what's the second area? What is it? Righteousness. righteousness. Okay? Righteousness. The Spirit works to bring conviction of sin, but the, the Spirit also works to convict us of true righteousness. What's right? the standard of righteousness, which is Jesus himself. It's the Spirit's job to convince people that Jesus is the only perfectly righteous person who's ever lived. And as such, he's the only one who's ever perfectly measured up to God's holy standard. Right? Only one person who's ever kept the law of God perfectly, and it's the Son of God. So Jesus is the standard of righteousness then that satisfies God's demands. And the Holy Spirit has to work in a person's life to convince a person of that truth, or a person would never arrive at that conclusion on their own. There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but they reject his substitutionary work on the cross. They reject the truth of his deity. They reject the fact that he's God in human flesh. They reject the fact that he alone is righteousness, and they've got to have his righteousness in order to have any hope, right? You're not saved by keeping the law yourself. You're saved because Jesus kept the law for you and you have faith in Jesus. Right. And it's the Holy Spirit who convinces a person of this truth. So he convicts in the area of sin. He convicts in the area of righteousness. The third area that he convicts in? Judgment. Judgment. What's judgment? Judgment. I'll tell you what judgment is. Judgment is what you get because of this and lack of this, <laughs> right? God, because he's holy and just, he's got to punish sin. In his character, his character is holy. He is perfectly holy. Holy like you can't even begin to imagine. And his disposition against sin is that of judgment because of who he is. And his standard then Listen, God to save a sinner, God doesn't, God doesn't lower his standard. Do you think that when you got saved that God lowered the standard for you? He didn't lower the standard. He himself died under the standard. How committed is God to his holiness? Look at the cross. The cross. Where God incarnate dies. As a lawbreaker, even though he himself was the only one who had ever kept his law. This is why the gospel is just such wonderful news. Because the law the, the perfect one died for the lawless one, so that the lawless one could be declared righteous, and the righteousness of Jesus could be credited to my account. So listen, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts a person of his truth. It's the Holy Spirit then who is active in making the redemptive work of Jesus Christ personal to you as a believer. Now he's got to do that in the life of every unbeliever. He's got to convict that person of sin, righteousness and judgment before any person will ever get saved. They've got to be convicted of their sin, their lack of righteousness and the fact that only Jesus, it can be their righteousness, that they themselves deserve the judgment of God, but that Jesus bore the wrath of God in their place. The Spirit's got to work to convince a person of that before a person will ever get saved. Now, conviction, it's not just just limited to the lives of unbelievers, is it? You ever had the Holy Spirit ring your bell as a believer? You better believe it. I can't tell you how many times. Listen, today, he did it today in my life. I said something in a way I shouldn't have said it. And immediately, the Spirit living in me made me aware of my attitude with which I said something and I had to confess it. Tony Evans, nobody can say it better than him. Listen to this. Uh, He says, your body is the Spirit's temple. And when your temple starts going places it ought not go and doing things it ought not do, the Holy Spirit like a metal detector in an airport, goes off when he detects something illegitimate in your life. (laughs) Gets your attention. But you know what? He does that because he wants to have fellowship with you. Our God is a God who wants to tabernacle among us. He wants us to have fellowship with him. This is where joy is found. This is where peace is found. and Confidence for living is found. And sin stifles that relationship. I don't lose my relationship with God as a believer, but my fellowship is impacted. But that's why the Spirit works to convict me. Because I won't be in right fellowship with God. When I'm not in right fellowship with my brother or sister, the Spirit works to convict me of that. Read first John. John deals all about, he deals with that in, in chapter one. Confessing sin so that you be in fellowship with God and your fellow believer. It's about as far as I'm going to get. The second work or second component of what the Spirit does in making salvation real and personal and making the redemptive work of Jesus Christ personal in the believer's life is that it's the Spirit who regenerates. It's the Spirit who brings you to life in Christ. And I'm going to stop right there. Won't you stand with me as we pray tonight? <clears throat> Aren't you grateful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer? I'm so thankful. You know, the Bible says, don't quench the Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, don't grieve the Spirit by whom you've been sealed. the day of redemption. What is it that grieves the Spirit? What is it that quenches the Spirit? Well, it's, it's sin in the lives of believers, whether it be through our words or our actions or our attitudes. And he lets us know when we sin because, listen, he lives in us, and that's part of his convicting work. One person said it this way, when it comes to the conviction of the Spirit, we're like the general who was defeated in, 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 in war. And he said to the victorious general, I've come to negotiate the terms of my surrender. And the victorious general replied, no, I'm going to give you the terms of your surrender. <laughs> God doesn't negotiate. He doesn't negotiate. But he convicts so that we can fall at his feet in submission. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you, Lord, for the wonderful truth of the Spirit's presence in our lives as believers. Even though we feel like we're alone at times in life, we're never alone. We'll never go somewhere where you're not there with us. We'll never encounter some situation where you're not there to give us wisdom and counsel and power Lord, thank you that we're sons and daughters of God, and the Spirit communicates this to our hearts. It's the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and we can't lose that status of sonship. Our fellowship can be hindered, but we can't lose that status of sonship because it's by the power of God, and we're being kept by the power of the Holy Spirit, we thank you for that. So Lord, for the men and women in this room, whatever decisions that they're facing in life, whatever issues that perhaps are going on in their lives, their family's life, Lord, may they be encouraged tonight by the promise of the spirit and the presence of the spirit in their lives. And those that don't know you, God, who are in darkness, oh, may the spirit bring conviction to their hearts. I think about those in my family. I think about my stepbrother, Lord. Would you bring conviction to his heart? Show him his need for Jesus. Use us as witnesses, Lord. We love you. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.